Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Gentle Thief, written and performed by Amanda Dixon, Episode 9. In Episode 8, the unmasking of Consolier continues. He invites Maddie to his company Christmas party and then uninvites her, telling her it is for employees only. She believes in her heart that this is a lie and asks her neighbor, Junior Kemmler, to drive her up to the ski resort where the party is planned to help her catch him in a lie. And she does. When they drive back down that night, she feels empowered and goes to sleep after a long night of talking to Junior, feeling that way. But when she wakes up in the morning, Khan is sitting in her driveway with an idea of how they can stay together. And now episode nine of A Gentle Thief. February 2004. Tomorrow at 11 o'clock. Rick stuck his head in Sophie's door and waited for her reaction. What's tomorrow at 11 o'clock? Came her natural response. Our appointment with the M.E. on the Johnson case, he stated, as if she should have known what he was talking about. Great! Holy cow! Great! Um, Are we ready? Sophie felt her body temperature going up and worried that she would sweat on yet another dry-clean-only blouse. I don't know, Brownlee. Are we? We better be after all these weeks. Ike Johnson isn't going to wait around forever while we bill him by the hour for just reading a file. Why did he have to be like that? We're ready, she said defensively. Of course, we're ready. I better go over the arguments with you just to make sure we're clear so you can take the lead with Dr. Verdad. I don't have time. I'm off to court in a few minutes, and I'll probably be there all day. Fill me in on the flight tomorrow morning. Twenty years of investigation in an hour and fifteen minutes. There's really only one question you need to answer for me anyway, Rick added, seeming not to notice the look of concern on Sophie's face. Why didn't Juan change the death certificate when the family asked him the first time? When was that, by the way? Well, they lobbied against the initial determination. Actually, that's probably not accurate. They were shocked by the initial determination, which was made by Verdad's predecessor. What was his name again? Harold Levitt. Okay, so they were shocked when Levitt came back with suicide, even more shocked when the powder test on her hands came back negative after Levitt's initial judgment. Then didn't you tell me the family came at the Emmy again with another lawyer 10 years later? 
Rick was finally getting into the facts. Good. Yeah, we're the third law firm the family has hired. The first one was shortly after her death. The second was hired eight years later. They're the guys who hired the investigator who conducted all the follow-up interviews I've been reading. Plus, they got permission for the second autopsy, which uncovered the screw-up with the lost bullet fragments. Remember that? Rick smirked. Sophie kept going. So the second law firm took all the evidence to the ME in 1993. So why didn't Verdad go for it then? He asked. Sophie hesitated. Why didn't he go for it then? I don't know, she admitted. Well, you've got until 11 o'clock tomorrow morning to find out. Rick, Sophie was pleading now. I've got this deposition transcript to get done for Tom by first thing tomorrow, and it's seven volumes plus exhibits. I guess you'll be busy then, Rick laughed, patted the door frame as was Tom's habit, and started back down the hall toward his office. Okay, she knew she had to get those deposition transcripts summarized and the arguments outlined for the water law senior partner, Tom Weiss, by tomorrow morning. Tom seemed in no mood lately to be asked to wait so she could fly to Salt Lake with Rick on another case. And she knew she had to have the details of the Johnson case clearly in her mind, along with an answer to Rick's question. Why wouldn't the ME agree to change the death certificate 10 years ago when the Johnsons first approached him? Time for a game plan. What time was it, anyway? Only 10.30. Great. She would work feverishly the rest of the day on the transcripts. She would close her door and tell her secretary... (laughs) Sophie still giggled inside every time she thought about having a secretary... ...to hold her calls. With any luck, she could have the summarizing done by the end of the day, then take home the Johnson file and review it for an answer to Rick's question. She could read as late into the night as necessary in order to collect her thoughts and her arguments and then be ready for both partners in the morning. Sophie let her mind wander as the coffee pot gurgled. Why hadn't the Emmy agreed to change the manner of death? Didn't the powder test convince him that Maddie had never fired a gun? Shouldn't that have been enough? Or was Sean right when he told her a big percentage of those tests are proven inaccurate? And if that's true, why do they even do them? It reminded Sophie of doing polygraph tests you could never admit in court or even bring up. What's the point? What about the fact that the police in Cedar City totally botched the investigation, not preserving any evidence, not protecting the sanctity of the crime scene itself? Wouldn't that be enough to give the family the benefit of the doubt? What was keeping Dr. Verdad from changing it? Did he not want to be responsible for opening up a 20-year-old cold case? That shouldn't be his concern. His job was manner of death, not the ramifications to the police of that determination. The bottom line, Sophie thought, is that she may have to just come out and ask him why he wouldn't change his mind. Or did that fall under the rule that she had learned in law school? Never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Sophie woke with a start at five o'clock the next morning, just moments before the beeping of her alarm began softly and got progressively louder and faster. She hit the snooze button and then took the brave step of turning it all the way off. She was committed now. Had she slept at all? She must have, but her body didn't acknowledge the fact. Then she smiled, hearing the soft sounds of Sean breathing next to her in the bed. His back was turned to her. It looked so broad and still. She loved listening to him breathe. It wasn't really snoring, just 
audible exhaling. And since she usually fell asleep first, the only time she got to hear it was in the moments after she woke up before she threw herself into the day. She nearly reached out to touch his back, then decided not to risk waking him up. Sophie swung her legs onto the floor and sat for a moment to avoid the dizzy spell of getting up too quickly. Walking groggily to the shower, she thought of the argument she had not prepared the night before. It's okay, she thought as she brushed her teeth. I have two hours at the office and then an hour flight. She didn't take the time to shave, dried her hair quickly, put on her best navy blue pantsuit, grabbed a too-firm bagel from the bag in the fridge, and hurried out the door. Shoot, she said, realizing she had left the Johnson file on the coffee table and ran back in the house to get it. Sophie drove down the quiet Summerlin Street. She passed one house with a kitchen light on and another with a bedroom light on, but no other cars pulling out of garages. Not yet. She decided not to stop at Starbucks that morning, unsure if they were even open. Did they open at six? She turned onto Hughes Parkway and pulled into her parking garage. Sophie laughed at the pleasure of getting the spot right by the walkway. What kind of a shallow person derived that much pleasure from a parking space? Was it the shortened walk, or was it the thought of the partners noticing her car parked so obviously early in the day? Who was she kidding? The partners didn't know what kind of car she drove. Unlocking the office door, Sophie flipped on the light in the reception area, and then the light for the right hallway. She dropped her briefcase on the floor by her chair and went back to the break room to make coffee. Hadn't she been doing this exact thing just a few hours ago? The aroma of the strong coffee began to encourage her, and she turned her thoughts to the meeting ahead, now just four and a half hours and 420 miles away. She poured a tall mug, stirred in the cream she always worried contained too many calories, and went back to her office. She flipped on the computer and reviewed her project list while it warmed up. She had checked off the water law project last night before she left that summary on Tom's desk. She still had Rick's hazardous waste case, a family law issue to research for Pete in the office next door, two oil and gas lease questions for the guy down the hall, and Madeline Johnson. When her computer came to life, she pulled up the Deseret News website. Sean has suggested to her last night that she read the paper for Salt Lake City before flying there to meet with Dr. Verdad. You just never knew what might be happening in another city that could affect your meeting there. Good idea. She scanned the headlines, mostly stuff about the Utah legislature, bills denouncing the United Nations, bills in favor of ending terrorism. What? Then Sophie wondered how funding for the medical examiner's office was handled in Utah. Had Dr. Verdad's department been sufficiently funded this session? Was he a political animal like every other state employee? He must be. Sophie made a mental note to call the legislative offices when they opened and find out the details regarding his funding so she could congratulate him or sympathize with him, whichever the case. She took a deep breath. <sighs> she heard Ike Johnson's voice in her head. I have faith in you. Ready? Rick was standing with his jacket on in her doorway. It's not time yet, Sophie said, shocked to see him before seven. She had just started typing her argument. Yeah, it is, Brownlee. Get a move on. Our flight leaves at 7.30. Plus, I need a Diet Coke. Is the machine out? No, I want one with ice. Sophie smiled, giving up on typing her argument and grabbing her briefcase. Don't tell me there's a difference between Diet Coke from a can and Diet Coke on ice. Uh, there's a huge difference. Let's go. 
They rode down in silence, except for the brief hello Rick gave a lawyer from another firm who got in on the second floor and rode the rest of the way down with them. Who was that? Sophie asked after they put some distance between them and the guy in the elevator. A thug I had to settle a case with a few years back? Rick walked without hurrying toward the parking lot. Does the thug have a name? Sophie asked, unsure of where the self-confidence came from in her, where Rick was concerned. I call him Javert. As in Les Miserables? Is there another one? By the way, you're driving, he stated, as he ambled over to the passenger side of Sophie's car. Quite a nice space you got there. Rick winked at her, and she felt a sweet satisfaction as she hit the remote unlock button, and they both climbed in. After stopping at a convenience store and getting Rick an enormous Diet Coke with lots of ice, Sophie started heading toward McCarran and their early Delta flight to Salt Lake City. Rick answered a call from his wife, laughed a hearty laugh Sophie liked hearing, and told her he'd call her when they got back to Vegas that afternoon. Then he futzed around in his coat jacket looking for something he didn't find before they made it the short drive to the airport. They headed inside, through the line at security, which was short at this early hour, and straight onto the flight. When they sat down in first class, Rick ordered another Diet Coke. Okay, he started in. You've got one hour, but don't take up the whole time. I'd like to look over some other materials before we get there. Just give me why Juan didn't change the death certificate when the Johnsons asked him to ten years ago. Because he doesn't like to be pushed around? Because he doesn't like to be pushed around? She said with a question in her voice. What? Lawyers push. That's what we do. Juan isn't a tender foot. He can handle it. Tell me you have something better for me than that. The other lawyers didn't just push him. They pounded him with the fact that his office lost the bullet fragments removed during the first autopsy. They humiliated him, or they tried to, because now no one can ever weigh those fragments with the other ones to see if the bullet came from her gun. Yeah, yeah, I got that part. So they beat him up with that, and they pounded him with the botched police investigation in Cedar City. You know, why did his office not go down there directly? Why was a suspicious violent death not treated as a homicide from the get-go? But here's the clincher. Ike talked the first lawyers into pushing the ex-boyfriend-did-it theory. Number one, for dad doesn't care. Number two, he doesn't care. Number three, he doesn't care. You're catching on, Brownlee. So what did we do differently? We ask a question. We simply tell him the story straight. The family can't let it go. They'll never let it go. They've hired us. If he doesn't change the manner of death determination this time, they'll hire another round of lawyers and he'll be dealing with them in a year and on and on and on. Then you use your buddy-buddy status with him to warm him up a little. I never said we were buddy-buddy. You call him Juan. That's his name. Okay, you use having met him 30 years ago in law school to let him know we know this case is a pain in the butt. We know he's seen the file before and is aware of the inconsistencies in the investigation and reports. We respect him and his time, and then we ask him the question, what would it take for him to change the death certificate? You're supposed to know that, Brownlee. We're not flying to Salt Lake on the client's dime on a fact-finding mission. We're flying there to get a yes, the same reason we go anywhere. I don't know the answer. I've read everything in the file three times and played it out in my mind every way from Sunday, and I don't know the answer. So, you want me to go in there today with the car salesman pitch? What's it going to take to get you into this car today? What's it going to take to get you to change the death certificate today, Juan? 
I think I'll need to run that by my sales manager before I say that's not going to work, Brownlee. Sophie felt the heat coming up again. She was grateful for the turtleneck. She sipped her tomato juice and waited. You've got some chutzpah. I'll give you that. But you're violating the first rule of lawyering. You never ask. I know, I know. You never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Oh, so you do know that one. Well, then, what if we ask the question and Juan says, nothing? There's nothing you can do or say or show me to get me to change the death certificate because I'm never changing it, period. What if he says that, huh? Then you'll have to pull out your big gun, Sophie said with a smile. Rick was laughing now. (laughs) My big gun? Yeah, your charm. Rick Day and Sophie Brownlee for Dr. Verdad. Have a seat, the woman responded without warmth. She was no Connie. Sophie sat, thinking how charm was probably not a job requirement for the receptionist of a medical examiner, considering that most of the people who came through those doors did so on gurneys. Hey there, Rick. How you doing? Dr. Verdad was shorter than Sophie had pictured him, with huge brown eyes behind thick but stylish glasses. He had curly black hair that was cut short and only slightly receding. He looked strong, too, like he worked out, probably lifted weights. Great, Juan, really good. Thanks for seeing us. They shook hands for a moment, sizing each other up. Then, as an afterthought, Rick added, Oh, this is Sophie Brownlee, the only associate I've ever hired with more audacity than me. Rick laughed loudly, which made the receptionist give him a stern look as if he wouldn't be getting another warning. Sophie blushed. Hello, doctor. Thank you for your time. No problem. Although I'm not sure you'll be thanking me when you leave. The Emmy started walking down the narrow hallway to the right. Rick and Sophie followed. Here we are, Ron gestured, and they sat down around a small round table in a conference room that was smaller than the break room at the law firm. Sophie and Rick took off their coats and then struggled with finding a place for their briefcases in the cramped space between their chairs. Have they hit you up yet to organize the fundraising drive for the law school? Rick asked Juan. Who, me? (laughs) That's funny. Nobody would send in a dime if I wrote the letter. Most of you guys don't even think of me as a lawyer. Which is funny, actually, because most of my med school classmates don't think of me as a doctor, either. I'm equally dismissed by both of my professions. Juan chuckled to himself. They all looked at each other for an uncomfortable moment. So, you're here about the Johnson case. Juan got right down to business. Yep, that's the one. Sophie here is about to convince you to change your mind. Rick smiled and looked at her, conveying unmistakably that the ball was now totally in her court. Juan looked at her, too, and waited. You probably haven't thought about this case for years, Dr. Verdad. May I refresh your memory just a little? Sophie inquired. Actually, I pulled the file this morning when I saw you guys were coming. 23-year-old female, single gunshot to the head, hand still holding the gun when the coroner got there. Powder test came back negative. Second autopsy pulled the remaining fragments that my predecessor missed. But the initial fragments had been misplaced, so no comparison with the bullets in her gun could ever be made. Dr. Verdad paused as if to say, How am I doing so far? Sophie bit her bottom lip. And then there's the family, he kept going. Dad can't believe it's a suicide. He's been bugging me for years, asking me to change the death certificate. First he wrote his own letters, then his lawyers wrote letters, and then a private investigator, and even a state senator wrote me. I've got a thick file of correspondence just with Ike Johnson and company. You want to see it? 
He didn't wait for an answer. These are the letters just from the big shots in Philadelphia, who pounded on me some more after the second autopsy. They had concluded, in their expert opinions, that the boyfriend murdered Miss Johnson, and they wanted me to change the manner of death so a homicide investigation could be launched. Should it have been? Sophie interrupted. Rick looked at her sharply, but she knew it was the right thing to ask. I don't know. Probably not. The case is cold as hell. Look, he rubbed his head as if he couldn't take very much more of this. I know the initial guys botched this case. If it had been on my watch, I would have handled things differently. But I gotta tell you the truth. I think Levitt made the right call. Even with the powder test coming back negative? Sophie jumped in again. How much do you know about those tests? Dr. Verdad asked Sophie. That they test whether or not you fired a gun in the last few hours. So you know what you've seen on NYPD Blue? Sophie didn't appreciate his tone, but she didn't let it show. Let me fill you in on the science. Those tests are crap, okay? They're only accurate about 25% of the time. I'm not even sure why we do them. Rick laughed nervously. Sophie remembered Sean telling her the same number, about 25%. She hadn't wanted to believe it at the time. If they're so unreliable, why do you do them? Sophie asked, genuinely wanting to know the answer. Because they're better than nothing. Dr. Verdad looked a little less annoyed than he had at the start. How do you know that Madeline Johnson's powder test is in the 75% and not the 25%? Sophie pushed. He paused. That was good. I don't, but I don't have to rely on that, and I'm not. I base my decision on the other evidence. The gun was in her hands. There were brown markings on her hands consistent with powder, even though the test didn't show it. And my gut. Your gut? Rick asked with a little too much incredulity. Yeah, Rick, my gut. Believe it or not, we docs go on instinct just like you counselors do, and my gut tells me Levitt got it right. The three sat in silence for a moment while Sophie tried desperately to decide where to take him next. When Dr. Verdad fidgeted, as if to indicate he was going to end the meeting, Sophie gave it her last shot. You know, we were hired to try to convince you to change your mind, something you've made clear to us you're not inclined to do. So let me just come right out and ask you. What would it take to get you to change your mind? Is there anything we could do that could possibly persuade you? When Dr. Verdad didn't respond right away, Sophie fought the urge to keep talking. One of her bad habits was filling any void, and she was almost starting to itch at the silence when the Emmy finally responded. I don't know. He seemed to want to give her something. Congressman in Philadelphia writing me pushy letters definitely won't persuade me. Is there anyone who could? Someone you respect who might see something we've all missed? Sophie was grasping at straws. The silence continued another few seconds. Then Dr. Verdad offered, I guess if other M.E.s who I respect told me I missed something, I'd take another look at it.